Hi, this is Shawande, and welcome to the 27th episode of the Z Talks podcast. On today's episode, we learn more about IO Foods. IO Foods offers handcrafted West African authentic frozen meals and entrees that can be ready in five minutes. You heard me, a nutritious, flavorful meal in only five minutes. IO Foods launched in July of 2020 and now has SKUs in over 4,000 retail locations. I had a chat with Petit Spencer, the co-founder. We spoke about her experience growing a thriving CPG company, how she leveraged data and insights to formulate the idea, and how her background and experience has helped her along the way. I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Z Talks podcast today. And we are looking forward to talk to you about IO Foods. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so excited to be here with you. Awesome. So, this was a particularly exciting episode for me because I know that your product is all around West African food. And with me being half Nigerian, I was really excited to hear about your product and learn what got you started in this field, in this area. Well, I'm half Liberian, so grew up eating a ton of like incredible West African food and uh, married someone who had a like tremendous appreciation for that food. And so the idea for Ayo came up just over our kind of dinner table several years ago. But at the time, we didn't know if kind of the mainstream market was ready for the the bold flavors of West Africa. You know, I grew up in kind of the food industry. So prior to starting this company, had extensive food um, experience, both in kind of big CPG, where I worked at General Mills, but also on the syndicated data side. And so I saw kind of the market evolve over time. And I'd say really uh, in the last three to four years, there's been just a broad market shift really uh, surrounding kind of the growth of global flavors, yet our food was just not existent in, in the broader landscape. And so, you know, we started working on IO about three years ago. We took all the extra money that we would would have coming in and sent it straight out to kind of partner with Uh, product developers and brand agencies and partners to really see if if, we could make West African uh, flavors take flight on a broader scale. And so uh, we launched in July of 2020 in about 50 uh, Whole Foods stores after sending samples out to just about every uh, retailer that we knew, kind of hand-packed in a lab. Whole Foods uh, graciously said yes, and we were so excited to partner with them as our as our first retail partner. And we've since expanded to over 4,000 doors across the country with many more to come this year. So it's just, one, it's been such an incredible journey, but one that's been a tremendous source of pride for us. We very much view IO as an invitation into our home, and um, IO actually translates to joy. So it's been Kind of a great, great joy of ours to be able to to bring this platform to life. Wow, it, it it almost seems, and I know it's been a lot of hard work and blood and sweat and tears, but it almost seems like an overnight success. You went in twenty twenty to zero to twenty twenty two to over four thousand stores. Is that normal, or is that something you guys you know work towards, and you just got in? We're at the right place at the right time. 
Yeah, you know, I'd say our journey is one that that typically isn't the, isn't the norm, but one that that certainly wasn't overnight. <laughs> you know, I think oftentimes today, like the entrepreneurship journeys are very uh, glamorized, and you know, we've had some great moments which we're incredibly ab- proud of, but. No one sees my 7 a.m. runs to FedEx or any any of that getting samples out. And, you know, we operate a lean team. So while we we get the glory of all of the, the fun things like this, there's a lot, a lot of hard work that goes behind the scenes. You know, I think a, a big piece of our scale so quickly was attributable to the fact that, you know, we, we kind of built this business. Uh, with the intention of scaling it. And so, and and that was, I can only attribute that to like, you know, playing to your strengths and, and the fact that that was the type of businesses that we knew how to build. You know, we both came from kind of the corporate sector and having come from General Mills, we we built products to really appeal to, to really reach broad, broad audiences. And so when we built IO, it was always this vision that it would kind of grow to that type of scale. And so early on, you know, we went straight to co-manufacturers versus producing in commercial kitchens. We reached out to a breath of retailers, really targeting scale. And so I think our approach going in enabled us to kind of scale quickly in that way. I think the other piece is in some ways the pandemic probably accelerated our trajectory and that people were just tired of the kind of same old, same old and looking to experience something else from the comfort of their homes. And so for us, you know, if we can provide high quality, easy to prepare flavors that you that will kind of blow your mind a little bit, we were hitting kind of a unique sweet spot in the market. And, you know, one of the things that we're most proud of is, you know, often when people, you know, warm up our dishes or we sample our dishes at trade shows, one of the most frequent comments is like, oh, this is like, how is how does this come? Like, is this is this already prepared or what is it? And like, people just don't really believe it's frozen food. And so, to be able to do something like that um, in a space that didn't exist, we're we're super proud of. Wow, <laughs> that's all I can say is wow. So, so many questions. Um, one of the questions that I had is, I did hear that CPG soared during the pandemic. Was it just that people were eating more, or they were? at home. So they weren't eating out. That's probably why they weren't eating out like during lunch and things like that as often as they would be if they were out. And so they were buying more products and, and eating them in homes. Is that why? Do you know? Yeah, there, I mean, you, you know, as, especially as you reflect on like the early days of the pandemic, like I think uh, there was a broad intersection of the public who wasn't eating out at all, either because restaurants were closed or because they were, they, there was so much uncertainty in the environment, like you didn't know, like a lot of people were kind of hoarding their resources and with, with the a potential risk that, you know, the market might not look the same or, you know, there's job insecurity, all of those things. You know, I think the other thing is in times that are particularly stressful or unknown, people seek uh, comfort and the comfort of home. And so I think people reverted a lot back to kind of home cooking because one, they were at home, but two, food can be such a source of comfort. And so I think people were actively looking that, you know, we didn't make sourdough, which I know there are gazillion sourdough challenges, but, you know, we made fresh bread. We made the dishes that I grew up with. We made all of those things because we had the time, like I could let a pot simmer while 
while I was on calls and things like that. And so I think there was this kind of reversion back to the basics in the, in the thick of the pandemic. And, you know, we feel like we've hit an interesting sweet spot, which is really an evolution out of the pandemic, which is kind of combining kind of that chef curated goodness with the comfort of home. And so, you know, early in the pandemic, we saw that uh, many uh, kind of restaurant folks were kind of taking on new roles and stretching things, stretching their business, how they thought about their businesses differently. And, you know, through that, we connected with Chef Ajapong, who launched two dishes with us uh, late last year. We're onboarding our second chef now, who's Zoe Ajonio. So we're incredibly excited about her joining the family. And this idea that like, frozen food doesn't have to be subpar or less than you can actually bring really great quality through the process of frozen to the aisles of mainstream grocery. And so we're not cutting any corners. We're taking all fresh ingredients. We're slow cooking everything. And then we're just like, we're, we're packing it at the peak of perfection so that other people can enjoy it. And it's a little bit easier to, to get there. Yeah. So it's super fresh and it's good. Like you said, people are looking for different options in the freezer aisle. Also, there's so many trends going on. So it started with COVID and now we have inflation. So I'm sure a lot of people are trying to save money, but they still want to have healthy and delicious meals. And so you're almost, it seems like you're primed for all of these opportunities. So that's great. Yeah. Well, we, we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you also had the odds a little bit stacked in your favor because you had the data knowledge um, by working, I believe you worked at Nielsen and you mentioned both your husband and yourself were from corporate America. So I'm sure you're a lot, able to take a lot of your experience and that helped you to get over some of those humps. Do you, do you feel that was the case? Yeah, absolutely. So I worked at Spins, which has a unique view of kind of the health and wellness space. And I think that view kind of highlighted the trends as they were happening kind of real time. And so what's interesting is Frozen certainly peaked during the pandemic, but even the three to four years uh, prior to the pandemic, Frozen was steadily outpacing center of store, refrigerated perimeter, really driven by these like more global premium flavors that were displacing kind of legacy brands in the space. Now, I think the pandemic certainly accelerated that, but that view kind of showed us that premium brands, more global flavors could be successful in grocery. Now, it did not tell us that West African flavors would should be where, where uh, we should focus. In fact, it told us like the opposite of that, right? Which is like there was zero market, so there was no growth, there was no history or any of that. But we felt like it was a risk uh, worth taking and a story that was worth telling. And so our hunch was that if people were accepting of other global flavors, they would be equally excited and encouraged to try IO. So you mentioned a couple of things earlier. You mentioned that you were building the company to scale. And then you also mentioned you were building it to appeal to broad audiences. So two questions there. The first question is, are you looking to build it to scale to sell it to an investor or another CPG? And then the second question is, are you reaching that broad audience right now with IO or is it over indexing for a particular ethnicity? Yeah, so great questions. I, I will say on the first question, like we, we will see where this journey takes us. 
you know, I think for us, it was it was very much about building something that we owned and creating a legacy brand that our children could relish in this, the success of. And so, you know, we'll see kind of where this journey takes us. Right now, our eight-year-old is very invested in being the CEO. Uh, <laughs> so that could guide us in a, a certain direction. Uh, you know, for us, it's about building a brand that's here in 50 years or 100 years. And so, you know, or longer. And so we'll see kind of where, where that road takes us and kind of the, the path to getting there. And then I'm sorry, remind me of the second part of the question. So you mentioned that you're building it to appeal to a broad audience. So are you seeing that or is it over indexing for, for a certain ethnicity? Yeah. So, you know, we, we uh, launched um, IO very much with the premise that the flavors of Africa, the flavors of West Africa shouldn't be relegated to one section in the store, but really celebrated across the store. And so in that, uh, we wanted to kind of create the recipes the right way, the way we would enjoy them at home. But we also wanted to create a brand that was welcoming and an invitation into kind of our home for all consumers. And so I think as we've launched, we've seen that play out in terms of the consumer adoption, that there are certainly kind of folks who, who look like me, who have my story, who are looking for the flavors that they of home, the flavors that uh, were so graciously made for them, um, but without the hassle or the fuss of that. But we're seeing a lot of uh, people who have never tried West African flavors being really excited about what we're offering. And it's been fun to see the reactions by those folks, because what I often remind people is, you know, we're representing 17 different countries. And so it's like, like I've heard people say like, oh, I don't like spicy food. And it's like, well, all West African food is not spicy, right? You know, what we what we've highlighted is the commonality tends to be it's fresh, slower cooked, layered flavors, always made with care and love. But that's really about the only commonality. So it's been fun to introduce people to these flavors where they don't know quite what to expect, but they're always pleasantly surprised. And we hope this creates a pathway not only for IO, but uh, for other of the many like incredible West African brands in this space to thrive and grow their items with a broader audience. Hmm. And, and so are there other West African companies and products in the space? Yeah, so not really in Frozen uh, in the specific place that we were in, but I'd say there's a host of like really incredible emerging brands in the space uh, that also have like beautiful stories to tell. So you have brands like Yolele or Berry Bissa or Pox Spices all of these brands who are really bringing the breath of West Africa to more people. And so, yes, there are a lot more brands. And we hope that, you know, our our path kind of creates more opportunities for, for those incredible founders to, to reach broader audiences as well. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to get a list of those companies and invite them to the Z Talks podcast. Oh, we have to network with them in general. Yes. Yes. I'd love to get you a list. We've got a list of probably about 30 brands. Awesome. Um, yeah. We regularly uh, keep in touch and mm -hmm. they're all like really, really incredible. And so we'd love to get you connected with them. Awesome. Yeah. Um, that's a follow up <laughs> for sure. 
So you talked a little bit about the flavors that are in your dishes. For people that haven't had West African food, how would you describe the flavors and why would just someone that hasn't had West African food try it? Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of reasons. I think first, I, you know, one of the unique things about West African food is it is consistently these like really fresh, slow cooked, layered flavors. And so I think what that creates is dishes that are like really bold and strong in their flavor profiles, like in the absolute best way. And so I think about a dish like Chef Eric's chicken yasa that he's created for us. And it's like this really richness and depth of flavor. My eight-year-old eats it like most days for her after-school snack. But, you know, from the caramelized onions to the chicken that gets marinated overnight to that lemon and Dijon, it's just like a bit of an explosion of flavor in your mouth and like in the best possible way. And while every dish uh, doesn't taste the same, in fact, they're very different, I'd say consistently there's this like surprise and delight about like the boldness and richness of the flavors, but above and beyond just like really incredible flavors. I think the the other story that is probably even less told is that there are a lot of like really um, incredible ingredients that come from the West African diaspora that really um, are incredibly nutrient dense. Often they're upcycled and have a ton of potential across like a broader market. So like if you look at a dish like a goosey, which features the goosey seeds, right? Like a goosey seeds are incredibly rich in, in protein. They have all the right fats. You know, you look at the wache leaves that we use in our wache. Those are incredibly rich in antioxidants. And so above and beyond like these bold flavors, the dishes are actually incredibly nutrient dense, you know, like we're about to launch an item that has 38 grams of protein. And I'm like, tell me any other item in Frozen that has 38 grams of protein and is like so incredibly delicious and and I'll wait, you know. So I think those two reasons for sure and then I think the, the third would be that eating this food can have an immense impact on the economic livelihood of folks in West Africa. And so if we can increase the amount of agusi people are eating or the amount of cassava people are eating or the amount of wache people are eating, we will surge demand uh, for those crops that are many of them which are native to West Africa and in doing so, like, increase economic enrichment for communities. And so a lot of what we're trying to do with IO is create scalable demand for these crops and ingredients. So in turn, you know, we're creating economic opportunities for these, for these communities to create long-term generational wealth. And we've seen that play out relatively quickly, which gets me incredibly excited and energized about our potential for the future. And so about four to five months into our journey, we invested in about 15 acres of farmland in Monrovia, Liberia, in partnership with an organization called Girl Power Africa, whose premise is really creating economic growth for women who were victims of civil war and Ebola in Liberia. And already we've created two homes on that land. We're already seeing seeing the crop yield. 
And that crop yield is actually going directly to the women as seed capital for businesses. And so that's a small example. And we're still young. You know, we're only 18 months in. But I'm like, if we can have the impact that we're hoping to have, we can actually like change lives just by eating a more diverse palette of food, which is really, really exciting and energizing to me. Wow. It's, it's energizing to me as well. There's, there's so much story to tell about the economic and the fact that it's nutrition dish that I'm sure a lot of people didn't know. So I'm glad you shared that story. And then are you saying that you're donating a certain percentage of your profits back to Africa? Is that how you bought the land? We made a direct investment in that. Or, so it's not a percent. Of pro- we made a direct investment and are committed to that organization long term. So we're in year two of that partnership where we're continuing to invest um, in that partnership. Our goal is to do that not only with Girl Power Africa, but organizations who are on a similar mission. And so we started what we call the Moon Boy Project. So Moon Boy translates to prosperity in Pele, which is my dad's tribe, really with the goal of like enriching the communities who inspired our brand. So it's very, very much a part of our, our DNA. And so I think the Moon Boy is one example, but something that, that we live by. I think the other piece is increasingly we're partnering with farmers in West Africa to source our ingredients, et cetera, as a way to provide direct investment into those communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's that's awesome. And in the fact that it's awesome, and then also that you can also point to the fact that you're doing good. It's not just for profit. You're actually making an impact on the world. You're doing good. So I commend you for that. And I also am going to look for opportunities to do that as well with my company and the companies that I found in the future. Let's move on to talk about your SKUs. How many SKUs do you have for IO Foods? Yeah, so we started with three frozen items. Um, As of next week, uh, we'll be at nine. So we're at six today, and then we're adding uh, three more, so nine frozen. And then our vision was always to bring West African flavors across the store. So frozen was a starting point. But we started to action that late last year with the launch of our uh, pepper sauces. Um, so we do like a Liberian pepper sauce and a chateau sauce, which are in the midst of expanding to retailers across the country now. And talk to me about e-commerce. Are you doing a lot with e-commerce now? We do, we're do. we doing quite a bit more than we have in the past. You know, it's what's interesting about e-com for us is we're frozen. And so everything gets shipped dry ice overnight. And so uh, you're typically buying like a six pack or a 12 pack of IO. So it ends up being like our biggest fans are using Ecom, which as people experience the brand, we're getting more and more of those folks in, but really look to Ecom as a way to provide a deeper, more experiential kind of taste of IO. So very excited about kind of what's to come on that front as, as we grow. One question that I have, I'm sure some other people might have, is there is a lot of need for social justice and economic justice in the United States. So why do you think it's so important to support Africa and grow their economics? You know, I I know it's incredibly important, but I know some people are going to say, well, what what about us in the U.S.? So can you answer that question? Well, I think when we built IO, it was very much about like for me, we wouldn't be doing the brand or our community justice if we 
took the richness of the brand and didn't give back to those communities. And so that was a core central part of our DNA. You know, that being said, we are Black in America. And so, you know, we have an obligation to enrich those communities as well. And I'd say on that front, I think a few things, you know, one, through the Moon Boy Project, we will do domestic USA work as well. You know, like we're just getting started. And so because we're partnering with organizations in Africa does not mean that we're not equally committed to enriching our communities here in the States. I think the other way that we do that is job and wealth creation for our, our factories, our supply partners, and all of those things. So in uh, being a mentor, coach, et cetera, to businesses who are, who are behind us. And so I think those are all ways that we can support the communities here. And by no means should, I, like, I don't think they have to be at odds with each other. Like, why not do both if we have the power to do that, which is very much the seat that we sit from. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that we told the story of why it's important to support Africa, you know, and then answer that question on how we're supporting ourselves over here as well. So I appreciate that answer. I also wanted to talk to you about marketing. And I know it's like jumping from a completely different subject to another subject. But yeah, I wanted to talk to you about marketing. Um, What are you doing for marketing? What What have you found successful? Anything that you can point to that you think our listeners should know about? Yeah, it's a great question because I w- what I'll say is like, you know, we're we're in the wild west in, in terms of like building and creating a platform that doesn't exist. So marketing becomes incredibly important for us to scale. You know, I think today we lean heavily into kind of the digital space. Uh one because the market is so digitally savvy and native that that's like the right place t- to meet people. Two, because we're incredibly lean, right, we have to be, like, efficient in terms of, like, how we spend our dollars, and digital is certainly one way that that we can do that. And so, you know, a big or decent chunk of our marketing resources go towards kind of digital activation and support. The other thing that's incredibly important to us is people actually experience the food, because what we found most often for the broader, for the more mainstream consumer is they don't really understand, like, when we say West African food, like, what that means. And part of that, right, to my earlier point is, like, it doesn't mean one thing. It means a lot of different things because you're talking about a, a, a whole entire region with 17 countries, all with their own unique traditions and food. But the other part of it is like, even if I said Liberian food or Nigerian food or Senegalese food, people might not know what to expect there either. And so we found that, you know, demoing demoing the product, getting people to experience a product is an incredibly important part of our kind of marketing journey as well. And so... That's been um, an interesting journey in a pandemic where many retailers have stopped their demo programs, but we've been able to find some creative kind of workarounds for that, be it uh, doing demos in person as things open up, but also doing kind of virtual demos through organizations like Social Nature, where we're able to give people the opportunity to experience I own the comfort of their homes as a way to build excitement for the brand. So you mentioned social nature. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's so important for your marketing? 
you know, in an environment, so we launched July, July 15th of 2020. And so at that point, everything was shut down. So like you couldn't even mention the word demo and like get any any response, right? And so for us, we we worked hard to find ways to for people to experience the product without us actually being able to go into stores and and have people experience it through us. And so what social nature does is provide folks who who choose to who express interest in the product an opportunity to try the product, experience at their experience it at their homes. Um, and it's been a great platform for us for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's giving you kind of direct access to consumers who are interested in the product and giving them an opportunity to try it. So as a marketing vehicle, it's great. But two, it actually gives us more texture around kind of the consumers that we're reaching and who's expressing interest. So for every person who's opt-in, we get kind of deep, deep insight around like who those folks are, where they live, uh, what types of, what are the other types of products that they're interested in. So it gives us a bit more texture around kind of our consumer base uh, beyond what we can glean through social media, et cetera. So as a young brand, that insight is incredibly important so that you can scale what's working, get rid of what's not. And so that's been a great resource for us as well. And so are you doing any other type of grassroots? I know you're doing demos. I'm assuming it's in the Whole Foods store. Is that where you're doing the demos now that things are opening up? Yeah. So as things open up, we're doing them at, you know, any retailers that will allow us to do them. So we've done them at Nuggets. We've done them out in, in the Bay Area. We've done them at Mariano's here locally in Chicago. Uh, we've got some in the hopper for Whole Foods uh, where they're allowing demos again. So, you know, we're excited to demo the product wherever wherever we can. You know, I think for many retailers, that landscape is still evolving. But, you know, for us, it's all about like allowing people to try it for themselves, uh, which is which is it's just so exciting to like actually be able to sample and see reactions and see the excitement uh, now that things are opening up again. So do you all do your own demos or do you hire a company to do the demos? It depends really on the market. <laughs> Most often, if you're in Chicago, you'll see me, uh, Mabel at the table. I'm Mabel <laughs> most often here. You know, we're, like I said, we're still a young lean brand. And so while demos we think are a key part of our growth trajectory, they are really expensive. And so for us, me doing them locally while I give up maybe a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, it saves uh, the company a ton of money. And frankly, above and beyond just the investment, there's good learning of like seeing the reactions real time to the product. And so I learn a lot every time I get out in stores, I see what people love, I see what they don't like as much. And then we can apply that right away. And so, you know, we're a team of four, but everyone on our team does demos at some point for that reason, because I think it's important not to lose sight of like what people are actually saying. And we may think our product is great, but we want to make sure that consumers are having a similar experience and a consistent experience. And so having our team do demos regularly helps us kind of stay close to that as well. Yeah, that is 
unbiased feedback. And I'm sure a lot of people that are sampling don't know that one of the owners or someone that's intimately involved with the company yep. is there dem- demoing. Because I know I've demoed recently and I've been pretty honest with <laughs> if I like it or I don't like it. I had no, I, I would not think that that was the owner of the company. So that's great feedback for you. Wonder, do you see an incrementality in that? You mentioned it's expensive, but it must be, other than getting feedback, is it good for driving that growth in those retailers? Do you see that? Yeah, I mean, we always say, see immediate lifts in our in our sales whenever we do demos, which I guess it's a good sign that like people are enjoying it and wanting to buy more of it. You know, for us, it's really about getting that first try. And then we feel pretty confident that people will come back for a second, third and fourth. But it's really, we think like, oh, everyone must know us now. We're 18 months in and we, we've gotten a decent amount of buzz. There are so many people that we haven't had the pleasure of like meeting and inviting into the IO family yet. And so above and beyond the investment, it's just like a great way to like build awareness locally. And so whenever we can do those, we try to do them. Okay. Well, thanks so much for sharing that information. I did want to also revisit the digital activations. What type of digital activations have you seen be successful? So we do a lot of social media, so Instagram, Facebook, all of those things. You know, what I'd say on that front is, you know, we've seen a lot more engagement in our, like, where we tell, like, really great kind of stories that are uh, more multidimensional beyond just a post. I think, especially today, people want to know, like, where their food comes from, what is the story behind the food, and, and we see, like good engagement when when our content is really focused against that. Above and beyond that, we do do some um, kind of paid digital. And then we really try to anchor our dollars against things that will drive direct and that will directly translate to the retail landscape. So things like Instacart or Critio have been incredibly helpful in one, kind of building awareness at the retailer level, but two, you know, as a lean team, it's really important for us to be able to measure the impact. And so on a platform like Instacart, I can immediately see the my return on investment. I can immediately see what's working and not working, which allows us to pivot kind of every day as needed and either dial it up or dial it down based on kind of what our current resource landscape looks like. Yeah, as a small brand, I've been told by other brands that they don't have access to the syndicated data like they would like to. And you being um, from Spins and then also being having a, a background in brand management, I'm sure you're aware of like the consumption analysis that you do that people do in brand management monthly. How are you able to replicate that as a smaller brand? It's a great question. You know, I'd say we're just getting more into using the syndicated data on a regular basis. And I think that's directly attributable to the fact that we've scaled to the point where we need to be able to drill in retailer by retailer and kind of gut check what we think is happening. You know, the data was also particularly helpful early on to really paint the picture Uh, for the vision for IO. That being said, while it was great to have the data to do that or the syndicated data, 
there are other ways you can get to that, that just more industry reports that you can get to that to be able to kind of craft a story that really really paints a picture for what you're trying to build with the brand. All that being said, syndicated data can be incredibly an incredibly large investment. So ways that we've navigated that early on was actually through partnership with our key distributors. And so they have all the ship to data and the SKU level data. And so we have some partners that actually consolidate all that data for us. So anything that we're getting for free, so our, all of our distributor data, portal data from any retailers that will allow us access to their portals, they take all of that and consolidate that into a single platform, which gives us a, a kind of more regular view of the takeaway landscape so that we can actively kind of get ahead of any potential issues or pounce on kind of big opportunities that we're seeing in the data. Right. So I want to cover three more things. I want to cover investment and what has been your philosophy to investment. I want to cover the logistics and the operations. And then finally, I want to end with what's next. So let me just start out with the investment. How do, how do you approach investment? Do you think it's important for a business to have it in order to grow? So not necessarily. I think it, I think whether to take outside investment or not is very much a personal personal decision, really based on kind of the goals of your business. For us, we did take outside investment, and so we closed a seed round of capital last year, which was led by Cleveland Avenue. So that's a local private equity shop led by Don Thompson, who's the former CEO of McDonald's. And then a second fund called Supply Change Capital, which is led by two incredible women. And for us, outside investment was critical to our growth because we scaled so quickly and because we just didn't have the personal networks to do it on our own. So Fred and I bootstrapped for the first couple of years as we were getting IO kind of up and running but depleted our kind of personal resources and knew that to scale to the level that we thought we had the potential to, that we'd have to lean on kind of outside partners to be able to do that. And so for us, our goal was to scale and scale relatively quickly because we wanted to be kind of the first movers in the market and knew we had a kind of opportunity to win there. And so because of that, we did make the choice to take outside investment. But I've seen many, many companies thrive in the market without outside investment, typically building at kind of a slower, more measured pace. And, And that's okay too, right? I think it just really depends on kind of your appetite to do that. You know, we have two young girls and we just weren't in a position where we could like not make any income and continue to like bankroll the business without outside investment. And so that that's what really guided us down that path. So how did you get in the room with them? I know that's always the question, like, how did you find them? Did they find you? How did you get that meeting? Yeah. So having come from the industry helped a lot in that I had some active kind of connections there And so one of our key champions at Cleveland Avenue was actually someone that I had worked with in a past life when I was in the CPG space. 
And so I'd say that got us in the room. But then, you know, once we were in the room, which is like the harder part, right, was really telling a compelling story about the vision that we were were, uh, trying to realize with the brand. And I think the fact that we knew our numbers, we had a really compelling market story, we had unique experience to give confidence that we were the team to be able to kind of aggressively create this space was probably what sealed the deal. I'd say getting in the room, I think you just have to be resourceful with your networks. When I think about some of the biggest opportunities that we got for from IO is for me like stalking people on LinkedIn or Fred tapping into all of our vast networks or just knocking on doors where we had to. And so I think uh, we're both kind of incredibly resourceful in that way. And like we, we are also um, not scared to, to for someone to tell us no. I think once you realize like the worst thing that can happen is they say no, that that uh, fear to like ask for for help and ask to be connected with people kind of goes away. So I'd say that's how we got in the room. But I think what's more important is once you get in the room, like being prepared to uh, shine when you're there. And I think that's ultimately kind of what helped us land the investment is that degree of preparation. Yeah. My grandmother used to say, when the door opens, be ready. Yep. So, so that's what happened to you. You were ready. You had your numbers. You knew your numbers. You knew the the story and the reason behind the brand. And then you also had the credentials. So all of that equals success. Well, you know, one thing I'll say about the credentials is – like for us, that came from industry experience, but I don't think credentials also always has to equal industry experience. There are plenty of people in this space that didn't come from industry. I think it is most important that you're confident in your story and your why and why you're the right person to bring it to life. But I think this is a space that's easy to get caught up in like, well, that's why they're successful or that's why they're successful. And I think if you just focus on, well, why should you be successful? You'll actually be much more successful. So our story isn't everyone's story. I think it's just like having confidence in your own story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having an idea, having confidence in that idea. And then like you said, being prepared to do the work and I also love, don't let fear of failure hold you back. Yeah. So a lot of lessons there. I also wanted to talk to you. I, I said three things. So the next thing was operations. So I always wonder, how do you get all this, all the logistics set up? Like you had to find the ingredients. You had to find the co-manufacturers you mentioned. How do you do that? Like how, what was the, the process? What were the steps you followed? Yeah, so a couple of things. One, I think a lot of our success to date has been driven by like surrounding ourselves with great partners. So, you know, we're a husband and wife team, but we lean heavily on kind of partners across all facets of the business to really help us scale. And so, you know, a lot of credit is due to an incredible set of partners, including our logistics, our plants, our production partners, amongst many, many others who are deeply invested in the business with us and and want to see us win. And I think that's directly attributable to like 
how we manage those partnerships. We very much treat outside partners as extensions of our team because we are so lean and and depend on them deeply for our overall success. You know, I cannot take credit for our uh, kind of production or operations efficiency that that is my other half. Fred manages a lot of that heavy lifting and has done just such a phenomenal job. One, again, finding the right partners, but then two, building deep uh, connections with those partners to be able to hold them accountable and make sure that we have all the right processes in place to be successful in that space. And so if you heard any background noise, it was him on the, on the, the, the call with with our plant today and if it wasn't the plan it was our our logistics partners because it 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 is no small feat kind of coordinating multiple productions we now have three production facilities with our retail landscape we have retailers all over the country and so like finding good partners who can help us manage and coordinate all of that and do it in an environment that's frankly challenging from a logistics perspective, given gas prices and everything else, is really vital to the success of our business. Yeah, two two are always better than one. So congratulations <laughs> on having a great partner there. I would I did want to ask you in terms of the ingredients. You mentioned some of the ingredients that are nutrition dense that you get from Africa. How do you get them from Africa to the United States to your manufacturing plant? Yeah, so that's a process where we work with a lot of people who are smarter than us. And so, you know, our chef partners have our R&D partners have been really instrumental in kind of helping connect us with with the right folks. And then, you know, we heavily lean into those relationships to to help make sure that it's done seamlessly. So most often ingredients are coming directly from a farm and then being transported directly to our production facilities, sometimes by air, sometimes by container, sometimes by train. Um, so it's certainly a, a, lot, a lot of coordination, but I think it speaks to the importance of like having people that you trust around you to make make sure that things are going to get where they need to be in the time that you need to get to them and really building those deep relationships. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious because I, I spoke to another brand a few months ago and they do chocolate and they get their chocolate from Ghana. And they were just talking about how everything is pretty much cash, cash basis. So it's just kind of curious if you had the same processes with the ingredients. No, we're not. We're not <laughs> out like lots of mm-hmm. cash. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know if I can trust that. <laughs> uh, okay, good to hear. So my last question is, what's next for IO Foods? I, I always get incredibly excited about this, this question because I'm like, the world is our oyster, you know? There's 60 categories in the grocery store, and we, we're now in two. So, you know, my hope is that we can continue to build our presence across the store. We're just getting ready to launch three new items. So Zoe Ajonio is joining the IO family to do two incredible items, one called a boy boy, which celebrates the bombara bean or the yellow bean, and one called a groundnut stew. And then by popular demand, we are expanding our jollof line to include a jollof with chicken. 
And so those three frozen items will be coming to retailers very, very soon, kind of across the country. So we're incredibly excited about that. You know, our our pepper sauces are starting to scale. So be on the lookout for those. We're bringing on two new retailers in the next couple of weeks, making those quite a bit more accessible. And then, you know, like I said, there's a lot more categories to disrupt. So we're excited for the day when we can kind of start to expand there. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us on Z Talks, and we look forward to seeing that disruption. I think our stomachs are looking for it. So thanks again. <laughs> thanks so much for having us. Ayo means joy in Yoruba, the Nigerian language. How appropriate, because Ayo Foods is making it possible for the masses to celebrate and enjoy West African flavors. When speaking with Petite, I learned how important it is to utilize marketing insights to identify the gap and how you have to be persistent to open doors. You also have to believe in your idea enough to invest in it, but ultimately to scale, you need investors and to connect with the right people. Thanks again, Petite, for speaking with us. And thank you listeners for joining us in our goal of bringing in a community of visionaries dedicated to making the world a better place. Be sure to follow us on social media at Zora Digital. Talk up. Talking up is what Z Talks is all about. Be sure to tune in next month for episode 28. Zora Digital is a digital marketing company based in Chicago. We help brands with the spirit of innovation navigate the digital landscape and create significant ROI. Yeah.